This is Rosen Institute's Your Law Firm, where Lee Rosen and Ned Days cover management, marketing, finance, and new technologies for building the practice you deserve. Here's Lee Rosen. It's good to be with you today from Sydney, Australia. We flew down here from Boracay Island in the Philippines, and I guess technically we're still in a beach community, but boy, what a difference 3,700 miles makes. Boracay is a tiny little island with nothing but the beach. Sydney is, of course, a modern global city with all of the conveniences. We enjoy lots of different places because they are, in fact, different. Well, Sydney, it's a fun kind of difference. It's time for your tech tip. Until well into my adulthood, I was perhaps the world's pickiest eater. And let's be honest about what picky means. When we say picky eater, no one is talking about someone who only eats broccoli and raspberries. Nothing green crossed my lips until at least the age of 20. And as for beans or legumes, as I'm told they're called, good effing luck. You couldn't have paid me to so much as touch a garbanzo or lentil to my tongue. But as is often the case for young men, I was willing to do terrible, awful, disgusting things to impress a woman. Back in the days when dating meant actually meeting someone in person instead of mass texting pictures of your genitals to women on the internet, I had just started dating a girl who, unlike me, was not raised on a diet of chicken fingers and hot dogs. It was a sunny Saturday morning. I was looking forward to a day of showing off just how suave I was when she came completely out of left field and said, let's make black beans and rice for lunch. A wave of sheer terror shot through my entire body. Pull yourself together, I thought. She is going to think you are a total weirdo if you freak out right now and just eat a box of Pop-Tarts and Reese's Pieces in front of her. It was at that moment that I heard the voice of my grandmother in my head. She had always chided my sister and me for being picky eaters. Douglas, one day you're going to have a girlfriend who invites you to dinner, and you won't eat anything she serves. What are you going to do then? Douglas is her son, my father's name, but more often than not, she called me Douglas, my sister Douglas, and sometimes even my mother Douglas, because why the hell not? She was old, and remembering all those names just wasn't worth the trouble. Granny was an enabler, though. She was all talk, but when dinner time rolled around, there was always a box of freezer-burnt bagel bites with my name on it. I can do this, I told myself. I read somewhere that smell accounts for something like 80% of how something tastes, so I thought maybe if I didn't breathe through my nose while eating, I wouldn't vomit on her shirt. Uh, mm, the, uh, the rice looks good, babe. I can handle rice, perhaps the time-honored trick of picking out a few unsoiled bits and then moving the rest of it around on my plate a few times would make it look like I had made progress. But then the lid came off, and I saw it. Lord help me, a saucepan full of beans. And for the love of all that is holy, the bean juice. So much bean juice. I knew then that this would end poorly. Okay, but maybe she would let me serve myself, and when spooning out the beans, I could tilt the ladle in such a way that most of that vile, disgusting liquid filth would drain off and the beans would remain relatively dry and isolated. Uh, hey babe, I'll, like, uh, serve myself, okay? No, it's okay, I'll do it. The juice was everywhere. It was as though Satan himself tipped out the inkwell of human misery right on my plate. Pull yourself together, I thought. Your ancestors suffered through war and famine and plague. If you scare this girl off now because you can't cope with some black beans and rice, you had better just pack it up, my friend. And so it came to pass that I ate black beans and rice. And nowadays, you know who loves a big sloppy plate of bean juice? This guy.
Sometimes we are resistant to the new, the unknown, or the unfamiliar. And for a lot of attorneys, dealing with new technology or any technology is like trying to feed broccoli to a toddler or basically anything to a 20-something Rice Krispie Treat connoisseur. I have four guidelines for you on how to tackle technology picky eating for both those who are flat-out resistant and those who recognize they have a problem but just don't know where to start. The first is to start small. One of the most common problems I see lawyers dealing with is feeling like they are so out of their element or so far behind that it's just not worth doing anything at all. Getting on board with new technology or increasing the role of technology in your practice should first and foremost be solving a problem. Buying a new tool or subscription or piece of hardware without any consideration for what exactly it's supposed to be doing is a recipe for frustration. Begin by identifying specific pain points. I guarantee guarantee that if I ask you right now to tell me three things, and they can be tiny, that frustrate or annoy you about the way things are running in your firm, you would have no trouble identifying them. You could probably give me 10. Start there. Prioritize implementing solutions that address those issues. The scope is small enough that you can grapple with the whole problem, and you'll have a very clear metric of success when whatever it is you're looking to solve no longer grinds your gears like it does right now. This will allow you to focus on integrating new tools effectively and gradually without getting overwhelmed by too many changes at once. Guideline two is to seek out expert advice. One frustration I hear over and over and over again when talking to firm owners is, I don't know what I don't know. You have a million things on your plate and you don't feel like you even know where to begin when it comes to understanding what's possible. There are podcasts and blogs and YouTube channels you can follow if you want to keep yourself abreast of all the latest and greatest, but it's still going to be a challenge to keep up. Don't be afraid to ask people who know. Talk to the account rep or the sales rep of the software you're already using or thinking about using. Bug them. Get them to explain things to you. Pay a contractor for a consult to fill you in on options and where to start looking. You expect people to do a consultation with you when they're out of their depth with legal issues. Don't be afraid to do the same in other domains. If you have colleagues or peers who are doing things you don't understand but you want to, put your pride on the shelf and ask them. We all love to feel like experts, so more likely than not, they will be flattered. Just make sure that this person is getting results. You don't want to be in a situation where the blind are leading the blind. Guideline number three is to choose the easy option. I am incredibly adept at picking the loser. Loser is probably not the best term, but it totally strokes my ego to go with the boutique artisanal choice for everything. Why pick MailChimp when I could use an email marketing product that was just created two weeks ago where I'm the only customer? What's it called? Well, you've probably never heard of it. The developers built it in a programming language they created themselves, and it's all on the blockchain, and you can only access it via a command line interface. But trust me, it's what people who know know what they're doing use. In a perfect world, we would use exactly the best tool for the job every single time. But you know what? MailChimp sends emails. And that's a lot better than not sending emails because you were too busy worrying about whether the service you picked is in fact the absolute best and really expresses who you are as a unique individual. Don't be afraid to go with the big obvious choice. Because it's big and obvious, there will be tutorials and developers and all kinds of resources that make your life a lot easier. And the final guideline is to make time for technology. You need to be willing to set aside time to get your hands dirty playing with and understanding new tools. And you need to not beat yourself up and feel like you're wasting time if you spend a few hours banging your head against the wall before something finally clicks. Actually understanding something is worth the investment of time. And making sure your team understands is important as well. 
allocate time and resources for proper training and integration of new technologies into your practice. Make sure your team is involved in the process and has the necessary support to adapt to the changes. We tend to be a change-resistant bunch, and the more help you can give your team getting on board, the better. If somebody on your team can be made twice as effective by spending three hours watching a $12 Udemy course, let them do it, and then let them explain what they've learned to you. We are all picky eaters about something, but if we put on our big boy and big girl pants and face the problem head-on, it's usually not as bad as we think it will be. And sometimes, it's actually pretty good. I'm Ned Days, and that's your tech tip. And now for your moment of concise advice. It took me a long time to be able to think while I was arguing in a courtroom. Mostly, I was talking while glancing at my notes. I was so focused on those notes that I really had no bandwidth for thinking about anything else. Whatever thinking I was going to do, it had already been done. I had done it in advance and written that thinking into my notes. I simply didn't have the mental space to talk and think simultaneously. There just wasn't enough room in my brain to do both things at once. We're all in different places in our experience level, but we share lots in common. And we know that arguing in court in front of any decision maker, well, it requires a combination of preparation and critical thinking and effective communication skills. However, it can be challenging to keep all of these elements in balance, especially when we're under the pressure of arguing in that moment right there in court or in front of the decision maker that we have to deal with in our practices. One of the most significant challenges of arguing out loud, of using our voices to make our case for our client, is learning to think while you speak. It's tough to do two things at once. And in the early days of my legal career, I I was often so focused on my notes that I was unable to pay attention to much of anything else going on around me. And as a result, I found it challenging to anticipate what the judge was thinking. I had trouble adjusting my arguments based upon the feedback that the judge might give me in real time. Now, over time, I learned to relax, to create the mental space that I needed in order to observe my surroundings while simultaneously speaking. I found that when I had that mental space, that paying attention to the judge's body language, well, that was incredibly helpful. By watching the judge's facial expressions, the judge's posture, vocal cues, gestures, I was able to gain a lot of valuable insight into what it was that the judge was thinking and feeling and that information, that data that I was collecting, well, that allowed me to adjust my arguments in response to what it was that I was seeing. That increased my chances of winning my case for my client. The ability to read the judge's body language, well, it's a critical skill for 
any lawyer, for any advocate. It allows you to anticipate the judge's thinking, to make quick on-the-fly adjustments, and to dramatically increase your chance of success. Yes, you ought to have a plan, but sticking to that plan no matter what, relying on your notes, saying what you planned on saying, well, that may lead you down the wrong path. So you've got to find the mental space to read the decider's body language. You've got to pay attention to that person who's making the decision in your case, whether that's a judge or a committee or a tribunal, whatever it may be. If you are pitching your argument to people who get to decide, you need to be able to tell what they're thinking before they make that decision. Pay attention to their facial expressions. Look for clues about their thoughts and their emotions. Look for signs of agreement or disagreement. Are they smiling or are they frowning? An arched eyebrow might indicate to you that the decider is skeptical or confused about your argument. Watch the judge's posture and body position. That'll give you some ideas about what they're thinking. That leaned back posture, that may tell you that the judge is disengaged or bored. But leaning forward, that may tell you that you've really captured their interest and their engagement. Listen for those vocal cues, the judge's tone of voice, the inflection. It can convey a lot about their emotion, their thoughts. Look for subtle changes in the tone. Look for indications of agreement or disagreement or skepticism. Consider their little gestures. Look for nodding or shaking of the head or pointing. All of that can indicate agreement or disagreement or possibly lack of understanding. Keep in mind that all of that data, all of that information needs to be read in context. Different judges have different body language habits and their reactions may depend on the specific circumstances of your particular case. You've got to know your decider. You've got to know your judge. But you know, knowing what you're looking for, it doesn't create the mental space that you need to do the looking. You need more. If you're consumed by your notes to the exclusion of everything that's happening in the room, well, then you're not benefiting from the option of being able to gather and process and interpret that additional information. For me, in the early days, I wasn't looking for that additional information. I wasn't searching for it. I inadvertently stumbled into the value of spending more of my mental bandwidth focused outside of my head. I was so consumed by being prepared for what I was going to say next that I really didn't realize that there was this treasure trove of data happening right in front of me. At some point, though, I realized that there was so much happening in the room and that I could use that information to improve my case. I realized that there was a tremendous amount happening in the room that I hadn't been paying attention to, but I didn't realize it for a very long time after I had been making arguments in court. It really was something that I just stumbled into, but you'll get there faster because you know that there's something more there for you to see. You'll be looking for it, but 
But you're not going to have the bandwidth to take advantage of that knowledge if you're not well prepared on the talking part of making your argument. You need those great notes about what you're going to say next. The more you've practiced, the more you are prepared, well, the more mental space you'll have that you can use to read the room, to see what it is that's happening, and to interpret that information, to use it to your client's benefit. Now, all of this will come with time, but you can make it happen a lot faster by being prepared, by being ready, and by looking for that information that's happening in the room with you. Give yourself the extra mental space by being ready. There's no telling what you'll learn and there's no telling what you'll do with the information that you collect. With practice, you develop this ability to think and to speak simultaneously. That makes you a dramatically more effective advocate because you can pivot, you can adjust, you can make sure that you do and that you say the right thing at the right time in the right way. That's your moment of concise advice. Wrapping up from Sydney, thanks for spending a few minutes with me and Ned today. We hope you have a great weekend and an even better week next week. Keep plugging away, moving forward, getting things done. You're on the right track. You'll get there. I promise we're all in this together and together we build better practices through better marketing, better management and better technology. Until next time, I'm Lee Rosen. Thanks for listening to Your Law Firm. Visit rosensrules.com for our free course on the 10 critical rules successful law firms follow.